When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. Hello, and welcome to The Paddock and the Pavilion. We have now reached episode 21. And for Christmas week, in the build-up to the King George VI chase at Kempton on Boxing Day, our special guest is Richard Pittman. Richard, a leading national hunt jockey of the 1960s and 1970s, won the race twice on star chaser Pendle. Sit back, relax and enjoy 40 minutes of pur joy with Richard. A happy Christmas to you all and enjoy the show. Hello Richard, welcome to the paddock and the pavilion. It's a very pleasant day and you've made it even more pleasant. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, how are you? Yeah, I'm in great form. I should be 78 in January and I'm feeling quite embarrassed about being healthy. Well, especially the, these days, but uh, yeah. that's very good news. And you've also kindly agreed to be on the show twice. So because you've got so much to tell, um, you've had such a full life. So today's show, we're going to talk about your riding. But to start with, we are only a couple of weeks away from the King George at Kempton. And you won the race on Pendle in 72 and 73 and were second in 1974. What do, you re- what do you recall about his two victories? Well, Pendle was an incredibly good horse. He was a bit ratty, you know, not a great big steeplechasing type animal. And um, he, we knew when he was ready because when he get finished a gallop, he would goose step like the German soldiers used to do on parade. He'd put his head down and it, walking home, this was, and his feet would come higher than his ears. He, and then Fred Winter would say, and I'd say to him, he's ready. And both times before the uh, King George's, he was absolutely doing this goose stepping. And so we were, we were quite happy. Very good horse. Now, everybody seems to think he didn't stay the three and a quarter miles of the Gold Cup, and he was just a three mile of the King George, and, and that is not true. He had this little quirk that when he was in front, he'd pull up underneath you, and, it, it, you know, it was embarrassing. He needed company. 
And both King George's, we won easily. So I was keeping hold of his head and squeezing him all the time. And there was so much more in the tank, even though he won easily. And it looked as if, well, I could sprint anywhere, but he was not dying underneath me, but he was always just coming back. It's a horrible position to be in, but he was just king at that time. A little quirk he had also was he would race the rail. So that long turn at Kempton into the straight, the moment he hit that rail, got against it, he would quicken of his own volition around it and therefore make 10 lengths when the others were trying to get back to you. You know, he'd be squealing around this rail and away he went. And a very interesting thing, Stephen, um, I was president, vice president with Lester Pickett of the Jockeys Association and Kempton asked me, could I suggest anything to improve the image of Kempton? Because as opposed to Sandown, you know, it was dull, uh, apart from the King George. And I said, yes, you've only got two fences in the straight, put three in, and then it's a jumping track, put another fence in. So they did. And this was to Pendle's advantage because he loved his jumping. And the moment he saw a fence, whoosh. I mean, there's a great photograph of him by Ed Byrne, who was a bus conductor at the time and then became a professional photographer, of him standing off a fence at um, Kempton Park outside the wings. He had so much scope. And this is why he would keep going. He saw a fence, he'd, he'd go for it. He loved it. Now, in those days, photographers only ever sat or knelt on the landing side of a fence. And Ed Byrne decided to take it from the wings and it became a hit. He, I think he sold half a million copies. And of course, all the, the Tingle Creek and all these horses uh, have photographs doing the same, you know. So anyway, Kempton, two very easy victories in the King George. But the time he was second to Captain Christie was a not, I'm not blaming myself for defeat, but, but, but going back on my thinking, I had in my mind that Captain Christie was not a great jumper. And um, he was going to make the running, so I was going to sit in behind. And I thought, well, I'll let him just go a little bit, because if he falls, I don't want to be tripped up. <laughs> so I let Captain Christie go. I never saw him again. <laughs> he turned <laughs> lens, so that he, You know, it was a basic error. I should have jumped out right up his tail. But we make these decisions and you live and die by them. In fact, I think Captain Christie, in my time and since, is the best steeplechaser I've seen since Arkell. But, you know, everyone has their own ideas on that. It's a great place, that Christmas meeting, because so many Londoners pack it. You know, what have they got to do, football matches? No, let's go to Kempton. So the atmosphere for that one meeting is electric. Sadly, not so for many of the others. Well, we're going to go back to the very beginning. and You were born in near Cheltenham Racecourse. Um, do you recall when you first went to the racecourse? Oh, yes, very, very clearly. Um, I used to play truant. I used to go to school seven miles away at Tewkesbury in the grammar school there. And whenever it was Cheltenham Races, I would uh, have my school clothes on and I'd have my racing clothes in my little satchel. And I used to change up the road about 100 yards away in the middle of an old burnt out oak tree. So I would leave my school clothes in my bag hanging in the oak tree while I climbed over the fields, uh, about three fields, over the, the railway, which was in use at the time. And I'd sit 
quietly in the inside of the uh, the wings of the fence at the top of the hill and wait and then see the action. So yes, from about the age of 11, I used to go to Cheltenham and watch the action. It was so exciting. One day I was sitting there and two horses were well clear of the field. And as they came down, started to run down the hill, one was going well, ridden by Arthur Thompson, I think, and the other, Brian Marshall, was knocking spots off it, you see. And uh, all of a sudden, he got upside the leader, Brian Marshall, put his hand under the bridle of the uh, of Thompson's horse and took the bridle off. So I was just utterly amazed. There I am watching this unfurl. It couldn't happen now because of all the cameras and uh, angles they've got and stewards dotted around the place. But here was a guy going well, well coming down the hill, thinking, oh, how far am I going to win? The next yeah. minute he's going left-handed to... Winchcombe. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> incredible. And I understand it was your sister who was your early influence riding. I didn't have an early influence because I failed nine O levels at Tewkesbury Grammar School. What does yeah, a small that, yeah. person you know, small person who can ride, what do you do? So I, I went in and just it was a job. Funny enough, my brother in law was a jockey um at that time. And I didn't look up to him. It was just a job. And then it took four years, Stephen, before I rode a winner. Four years of actually having a license. It yeah, was I read, awful. I, mean. I read, um, um, I was going to ask you about your first ride, actually. Um, do you remember the horse? Oh, yeah. Rosaggio, I think it was, at uh, Hereford. Um, I looked like an agricultural worker and I didn't improve much through my career. But anyway, the, the point was, I just, it was a job, that was all. And funnily enough, during my time, this was at Cheltenham, Woodmancote near Cheltenham, uh, there were quite a few trainers then used to train up on Cleve Hill, 10. Uh, David Nicholson's father, Frenchie was one of them. Uh, uh, anyway, there was a permit holder up there while I was just starting, called George Hackling, and two local jockeys were killed on the same horse at different times, obviously, anniversary it was called, so my early introduction to this, this little tight-knit group at Cheltenham was, was quite strong, really, you know, to think that two jockeys had died within the space of a couple of years. But that, I thought, well, that's part of the game. It's a dangerous game, but what else can I do? And so I carried on and, as I say, rode for these four years without a winner from 60 rides. It was quite embarrassing. Yeah, and I was my... going, to, going to say that. You, you've actually taken the words out of my mouth because... I read where it said uh, in the sporting life, Pittman rides winner at 60th attempt. You must yes. have been relieved to get a winner. <laughs> you wouldn't believe the, I, I was filling out petrol somewhere and uh, the, the attendant said, oh, I know you. And I said, well, I don't know how you know. Oh yeah, you're, you're the jockey who can't ride a winner. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, Fred Winter was the king and Josh Gifford, when I came into it, they were the king of the, of the weighing room. But m my thinking, Stephen, was wrong. I thought if I stayed in these small stables, you'd get rides. But of course, although you get rides, you get the horse with one eye and three bad legs. And the moment they've got one good enough, in comes the proper jockey, you see. So then I, when I understood Fred Winter was going to retire that season, I asked him, could I join him? He said, yeah, I've watched you ride, you, you're okay. 
you're you're only champion jockey, but you're okay and you're honest, and horses jump better for you than they do for a lot of people. So come and join me, and um, we'll see how we go. So I got a letter oh in May, I suppose, and it said, uh, "Dear Pittman, um, if you still wish to join me, I want to see you here on June the first. We don't have any accommodation at the moment." but I have a very good um, hut at the tennis court where we keep stuff and it's June, so it'll be warm. I think it'll be fine for a while. So, I mean, that was the start of my career with Fred Winter in his tennis hut. What a great opportunity to start with Fred Winter, the former champion jockey legend, really. Well, I, I went to him because I knew that he would be successful. He was such a strong man with great connections. And we only had six horses when I joined him the first week. Three of us were there, uh, but they quickly grew because he had a winner straight away. Uh, Jay Trump, who went on to win the national in his first year, was uh, a winner. They say it was his first runner. It actually wasn't. I went off 10 minutes earlier at Ludlow on a horse called 177, who Fred could, he was the only one who could ride him at home because he pulled so hard. And so I tootle off to Ludlow. Uh, Tommy Smith, the American amateur, went to Sandown for Jade Trump. And uh, Fred said to me, you won't hold this horse. You can't hold him at home. You won't hold him in a race. So what I want you to do is at the starting tape, face the opposite way to the way the horses are going to go. And then when the tapes go up, turn around and follow him behind. Well... We did that, and what he, I couldn't hold him, 14 runners. He burst his way through the field, quickly round the first bend at Ludlow is a fence. He saw the fence and went, yahoo, and stood off so far. You know, I'd never ridden anything of this class. And he pulled me out of the saddle because I hadn't slipped the reins, and he pulled me out like a stone out of a catapult, and I landed running. In, in front of him. I landed on the other side when he was still jumping the fence. It was quite incredible. I got a real kicking. Um, and when I got home, Fred said, well, you, you learn by your mistakes. You won't get a ride, another ride for three months. So that's how you learn. Um, so people who think that Jay Trump was his first runner are incorrect. I was his, on his first runner, 177, but it ended only about 30 seconds after it started. Well, you got your first winner on a horse called Indian Spice at Fontwell. Yeah. Yes. Now, Indian Spice won by 12 lengths, and he won so easily that I was actually disappointed. I wasn't elated. You know, I wasn't, wow, this is great. I thought, well, you don't have to be a genius to ride winners. You have to have the right horse and not make silly mistakes like, I did on 177 when I fell off him. So it was quite an uncanny feeling, really. And it made me realise this is what you have to do. Keep your nose clean and get the rides. The winners will come. Well, in 1966, I read your probably one of your first big wins was when you won the Imperial Cup. Um, And also later that year, and in fact, you won't even know this yourself, but today is the 14th of December as we're recording. And on the 14th of December... 1966 you rode against Arkell 
So we have the anniversary today. What do you remember about and the thrill of running against Arkell? <laughs> I rode twice against him and I was second both times. I think the one I rode for Fred was called Solbina and another one I rode for Oriol Sinclair, very good trainer. Both times they, they finished second to Arkell but were never any good afterwards. And I think he just broke their hearts, you know. You, you would get closer to Arkell in a race and then, like putting your car into turbo, he was gone. I mean, it was simply amazing. I, I've never seen another horse. We've seen great horses. Of course, we have Quarter Star, Best Mate, uh, all sorts of good horses. But I, I honestly don't think we've seen another Arkell yet. Well, you're answering some of the questions before I even answer the, the questions. Here. You're so good. I was going to ask you about other horses, how they compared to him. But before moving on to your golden years, Uplands, what was it like being a jockey in the 1960s, you know, travelling, injuries, weight issues? Mm. Weight, weight issues are the killer, really. The riding is the good. Every jockey will tell you the riding is, is the best part of the job. The travelling, you know, you're poor. You haven't ridden. I hadn't ridden winners. I got a mini. You had to bump start it to get it going in the morning, you know, that sort of thing. So driving to all these far-fung places was not good. The wasting was awful. And in my day, you could, it was not banned then, but it has been for years, a pill called Lasix, which they give to horses in America to stop them bleeding. Mm. But Lasix is a diuretic. And uh, it just makes you go to the loo for two and a half hours. And you are losing all the fluid from your body. But the side effect of that is that you get cramp in all your extremities, your elbows, your shoulders, your hips, your knees, you get cramp. And the other thing is you could hear yourself speaking, not rounded through your ear, but booming inside your head. Terrible stuff. But you could lose seven or eight pounds. And the first pill I ever took from a fit, you looking at me now, you'd never think it, but from a fit, hard, athletic body, I lost 11 pounds in wig. I mean, that is just terrible. Of course, it's banned, but not a nice, you know, not a nice thing to do when you're doing a physical job. But Stephen, adrenaline is a great thing. We've all ridden in those days with broken bones. You know, we, you break your left wrist and you'd show your right one to the doctor and say, no, it's fine. And you'd have a broken left wrist and go ride. You could do those things. Happily, the game has changed. I mean, also when I started, they were just little cork helmets with no chin straps or anything. And if you hit a fence hard, the cork helmet would fly out in front of the jockey. They were of no use whatsoever. And no back pads or anything like that. John Franklin's mother, Lil, uh, loved him dearly, as all mothers do. And she invented the back pad by sewing bits of cut-out polystyrene on a vest for him. Quite ingenious. But anyway, I, I'm digressing. And uh, so, yes, the, the travelling was, was, was hard. The wasting was awful. And the injuries, well, they came. You knew they would. But you, you didn't expect it to be today, you see. So we all rode and loved it. The camaraderie of being a jockey was fantastic. You can imagine with the great blonde bombshell Biddlecombe in the weighing room, you know, and... and his great mate Josh Gifford it, it was a magical place to be thank you for that it's really interesting I read once where you got down to 
nine stone seven. You, you couldn't do that today. And that was with the help, I'm afraid, of these Lasix pills. And it was in the Scottish Grand National for, he was Lord Chelsea then, became the Earl Cadogan. And uh, <laughs> I got cramp. I, I mean, it was an awful thing. I, you know, I'd been doing the normal wasting, but just to get to nine seven, you know, I took the, these pills. And I got cramped very early on. In the Scottish National, it's four miles. And this old horse slowly dropped himself out because he was getting no encouragement from the rider, you see. And uh, Julie finished and the race behind the pack. And he cantered out and trotted out as they pulled up. And when they pulled up, he pulled up and turned around and followed back. By this time, I, I was so cramped for the four miles that I'm still in the riding position. You know, the horse has stopped and is trotting back and I'm still in the riding position. And as we came into the unsaddling enclosure, I slipped off the saddle to, to, to stand by the horse and my legs gave way. And I'm lying in the grass, holding one rein. And Lord Chelsea came along, he was six foot four. And he came along, he said, oh, what's the matter? And you have to think pretty quickly when you're a jockey, you see. I said, you wouldn't believe it, my lord. I Coming in there from the, the race course, I've hit my ankle on the running rail, which were concrete posts then. <laughs> he said, oh, my, I'm so sorry for you. And he scooped me up in his arms and took me in to weigh in. in that, they wanted everyone to weigh in and plonked me on the scales, by which time the heat and warmth of the weighing room... I've recovered, you know, but I suppose I really ought to send in my riding feedback because it was fraud in a way, wasn't it? <laughs> and moving on to the your golden years between 1970 and 1975, when you rode some sort of legendary horses, Bula, Pendle, Lanzarotti, Crisp, uh, Galini, um, what was it like riding those horses at the peak of your powers? I'm not sure I ever had a peak of my powers, but uh, I had a good five years when we had we had those good horses, and we would we mentioned Kempton earlier on. We would go to Kempton and Sandown, Newbury. We'd have a double every weekend, and uh, both Pendle and Lanzarotti wrapped up eleven wins in a row each, and most of those were round Kempton. They loved Kempton Park. It there was pressure, but they were good jumping horses on the whole. I only rode Bueller in one hurdle race and then his following year in Novice Chases where he won four of his five and fell in the other one. He was an electric horse. Not a very good horse to work at home but the moment you showed him an obstacle, wow, didn't he wake up. Paul Kellaway rode him to win his two uh, champion hurdles and John Franken took him over after um, his Novice Chase years. Pendle was incredible. When we first schooled him over fences, he was only a cheap buy, 3,000 quid, uh, one, one small hurdle race at Catrick. When we put him over steeplechase fences at home, we went over the three horse uh, fences at Lambourne. Brilliant. And Fred Winter said, I've seen enough, take him home. I said, well, don't you want to see if it was a fluke? He said, no, I know a good horse when I see one, take him home. He is brilliant. And he was always. And as I said to you about the, the photograph there, he could stand off outside the wings and get just as easily the other side. It wasn't an effort to him at all. Um, Crisp was the most amazing horse. He was big, strong, muscular, pulled hard, jumped from the front, 
superb. I mean, the ride he gave me in the Grand National 73 was a memory I'll take to my grave. Uh, a great horse. And both he and Pendle beat Tingle Creek, you know, uh, at different tracks, um, getting course records. Uh, he, they were very, very good horses. Lanzarotti was a former flat horse, won the champion hurdle. He wasn't as good as Comedy of Errors. Comedy of Errors beat him most times, but we did outfox him to win the 74 champion hurdle. We talked about it, and I said his only weakness, uh, Comedy of Errors, was to go out right-handed when he's under pressure. And Fred Winter said, right, make it a stamina race then, we'll put a pacemaker in. And we put in one called Calzado, written by the Earl of Harrington's second son, DC Stanhope, to make it a fast pace, you see, and put Comrivera's under pressure. And blow me, Calzado made the run into the first and then stopped. So <laughs> I, I had to make a quick decision, right, what do we do here? And the decision was, the plan was to put him under pressure, let's do so. So I kicked on from about the second hurdle, which was being the donkey really, but it worked. So coming down the hill, Comrivera's jumped right twice, and we won by a length of a couple of lengths. So the plan worked, but he wasn't quite as good as Pendulum Crisp. And Kilini, who you mentioned, most people wouldn't know him now, won nine of his 10, won at the Cheltenham Festival, the, the RSA, um, the, the Novices Gold Cup. And then we ran him for three weeks later at Ascot, and he, he had a fall and broke his shoulder. And I was knocked out. And I thought in my mind when I came round that I'd seen him standing on his feet. And I was still in the ambulance room lying on the little bed there. When his owner came in, it was her first horse. And he was such a good horse. You know, he could have been anything. And when she told me that, that he died, I burst out crying. Now, for a grown man to be crying is embarrassing. But it was the emotion of the whole thing. Anyway, she picked me up on this little truckle bed with one hand and slap my face with the other. She said, like, how can I have horses if you fall apart like this? Anyway, off she went and uh, came back later and apologized and, and gave me a very nice present. She said, I was so upset myself and see you upset, you know. And, and she gave me a very handsome little present to take the wife out to supper. <laughs> so Kilini could have been anything, Stephen. He, in fact, was making a whistle noise as, as he exhaled, which indicated soft palate or some breathing malfunction. And we were going to operate on his breathing that, um, that, that summer. Well, if he was as good as that, when he was wrong in the, in the respiratory mm. area, how good could he have been? We'll mm. never know. Well, thank you for those recollections. But obviously we, we can't not return to crisp as you must have done on many occasions but before that the grand national your record in the race was was quite good you uh, came second and got round on another occasion so people obviously forget yes I, I only had six rides in the national and um steel bridge was trained he was second in 69 behind highland wedding rondetta third he was trained by one of the first ladies to have a license, Barbara Lockhart Smith. And um, she was a good trainer of largely bad horses and trained near Aylesbury. And um, Milton Keynes was being built at the time. So obviously there were a few builders around with some money. 
And uh, she asked me to school on, on a Sunday morning and get all the builders around, all the people with a few quid, and, and watch the schooling, go back to the farmhouse, have a couple of champagne, sell them a horse. That was the way it went. And that's how uh, one Jimmy Drabble, who was there, who'd never had a horse, said, oh, I want one for the Grand National. Well, we found Old Steel Bridge. We'd been round a few times, but very slowly. And um, anyway, he, he did manage to finish second, but... When we walked around the course with Fred Winter that morning, even though Fred wasn't the trainer, he walked me around the course. He said, I want to see you go down the inner where the brave men go. Um, and the, the turn sharper, the drops deeper, but you will save a lot of ground. And I'm so proud of that ride. He had a big fluffy noseband always up the front. So you could, you can see him on the, the, the replay of the race. And he jumped like a stag. But... I was never going to beat Highland Wedding. He won by 12 lengths, I think. But I was so pleased to beat Rondetto because Jeff King rode him and we were upsides at the last. And Jeff King is known as the professional's professional. You know, a hard man, a good rider, never champion jockey because he shared the job at Bob Tunnell's with uh, Johnny Hayne and Andy Tunnell. So the number of rides were, were not huge, but he should have been a champion jockey. Anyway, I managed to beat him up the run-in, and I really annoy him now at places when he's, you know, holding court, as he was at John Oates's funeral, and we're all in the church sitting there, and it's quiet before it started, you see, and, uh, well, actually, a memorial, and I said, Jeff, you know, I outrode you at Liverpool. Well, he jumped out of that queue. <laughs> he was you know, steaming out of the ears and every, it made great entertainment for the people who were waiting to pay their respects to Lord Oaksey. But I, I know how to press his buttons. Jeff was a far better jockey than me, but I happened to get the better of him in the running. It is such a long run-in, Stephen. I know you know it's 494 yards, but on tired horses, it's a long, long haul. It, it drags like bilio to get to the post. And you'd remember that well from 1973 when you were riding crisp in the, in the long run-in. Um, but firstly, what, why, why would a, a horse that won the champion chase by 25 lengths even be entered for the Grand National? You know? Well, in between winning the, <coughs> excuse me, the champion chase so easily, that he was tried, Fred Winter thought he'd be a Gold Cup horse. And we tried that route. He actually, I held him up, as you would a two-miler in a three-and-a-quarter-mile race, and he, he sulked. He didn't like it. You know, his natural exuberance and, and character was front-running and bold jumping. And we were bang there at the last, but finished fifth, and, you know, just wasn't good enough on the day. But to me, it sulked, and we'd taken away his character. So we talked about the national, and Fred said, well, what you would normally do, he had 12 stone. There were Gold Cup winners in it. Les Scargo was in it. He had nearly the same weight. Uh, he said you would drop him out last of the 40, go around and switch him off. But he said you won't get round. He is so bold jumping that you will jump on the back of another horse. You'll end up on the floor and you can't win if you fall. So he said we'll make the running on the inside, save a lot of ground and try and settle the pace of the race down. Because quite often, 
I was a senior jockey at the time, a, a race can be dominated from the front by a senior jockey. If he slows it down, the others are quite content to do that. Well, that was the theory. In practice, he saw the first fence and wow, most incredible feeling. He would quicken of his own volition. I, I never had to see a stride on him because he saw his own stride and would be airborne. And he was never running away with me. I mean, obviously, I got a lot of criticism. People said he ran away with me. Never was he out of control at all. It was his speed quickening into the fence, going low and fast over it, and landing, galloping. You know, he was galloping before he even hit the ground. So each fence, and let you know, there are 30 of them, he was gaining a lot of ground. And the only other horse upside me was Grey Sombrero on the wide outside, Bill Schumacher riding, and uh, he fell at the chair, which then let, that's the 15th, which left me well clear. And to go out onto that second circuit, Stephen, normally the noise is tremendous from the horses around you. You had nothing. And there was nothing. It was silent and eerie. And, and as I faced down to what would have been the first fence on first time round, hole in the fence, few jockeys standing there watching, you know who'd fallen early on. One of them was leaning on the rail holding a bridle. So when he'd come off his horse, he'd gone up the neck and taken the bridle off the horse. No horse, he's just holding a bridle. <laughs> and so it was quite eerie. And in those days, the public address system went all the way around the course. And I could hear Michael O'Hare quite clearly. Had a great voice, you know, very rich Irish voice, good great commentator um, and we jumped away down to Beechers just in silence I'm listening to the commentary and we got to Beechers and he flew it now in those days the drop was big and most horses to, to balance themselves their nose would nearly or quite often hit the ground so you had to slip your reins and get your body weight back on the horse's back side to act as ballast to keep him you know keep his bottom down because once their tail comes past their head you are in trouble so chris never even nodded at beecher's brook because he jumped so far over it that he sort of flattened out the drop if you see he was the most amazing horse and he did it both times and at the canal turn because i was so far clear oh i'm sorry just go back a minute i could hear michael o'hare as I went to Beecher's saying, and Dick Pittman's 25 lengths clear. He's going <laughs> away from the pack and the pack is led by Red Rum and Fletcher is kicking Red Rum. I thought that'll do for me then if he's having to kick, you know. Yeah. And then, oh, just before the next fence, David Nicholson is sitting on, I, I can't remember the horse, Barsnet or something. He was sitting there like an Indian chief with his arms folded on the horse's back and the horse was eating grass. And he said quite clearly, Richard, you're actually 33 and a half lengths clear. Kick on <laughs> and you'll win. Well, he spoke like that. We used to call him the Duke, you know, amongst us uneducated mm. fellows. The Duke was educated. Yeah. Um, and I thought, no, kicking on is the last thing I have to do. Stamina is in doubt. I've got to hold his head. But for the canal turn, which, as you know, is a right angle jump, I was able, because I was on my own, to move out and cut across the corner, almost touching the flag on the corner, and saving lengths, he was absolutely brilliant there. But you can then see 
the grandstands for the first time, but they're three quarters of a mile away. It's still a long, long way. So keep hold, keep hold, keep hold. And I, I, I never heard another horse until going to the second last fence, which is on the race course proper. And I could hear on the firm ground, the hoof beats, the drum, 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 drum. And the horse was red rum and he exhaled, his nostrils flapped, which did a There aren't many that do that, it's called high blowing. So I could hear drum, drum, getting louder and louder. And it's like when you're a kid and you're having nightmares and you're walking in treacle and the bogeyman's following you, you can't get out of it. It was a horrible feeling, but I was still so far clear that I, I hoped that I would hang on. But all of a sudden, like your car, running out of petrol. So at the second last, the warning signs were there. Mm. And he was a good moving horse. You could see his legs going out in front of him. And his legs were even going sideways slightly, you know, with tiredness. And he had loppy ears like that, like that. And even his ears went. Now, when you have lost the strength out of your ears, you have got to the bottom of the barrel. And, and so it became agonizing. And then I made a boyish mistake, which I'll live with, and I'll hold my hands up. I lost Fred Winter, the national, through take, picking my stick up to wake him up. And I picked it up in my right hand when I had to go right-handed to get round the elbow on the run-in. And the moment I, a big, strong, very heavy horse, when I took my hand off to give him a crack, he died away from me, you see, because I'd, I'd taken, taken away the rudder, if you see. I should have stayed riding, hands and heels holding him together and got round the elbow. So as, I, as he dropped away, I've had to sit down, pull him back. And I was still, I don't know, three, four lengths clear at the elbow, halfway up the run-in. And Brian Fletcher very cleverly challenged wide. And, and the reason that he did that, if he challenged close to me, it re-energizes a horse to find a bit more. And remember, it was only two strides from the winning post that Red Rum actually caught him. So I, I, that was a race I lost that I should have won. And it was a big, big one that got away. Fred Winter was a gentleman. The owner suggested a manifold took it well. They said, you did your best. In inverted commas, it wasn't good enough. But they were absolutely brilliant. If I'd have trained the horse and someone else had done what I'd done, I'd have pulled them off and kicked their backside. But I have to live without Stephen. And I went to do a talking tour in Australia, where he came from. Mm. And they hated me <laughs> for the ride I'd given the horse. They said, oh, if Tommy McGinley had ridden him, either one but funny enough i've seen a lot of photographs and videos of tommy riding crisp in australia and i think he'd have been pulled out the saddle like i was at 177 because he rode with a very short rein and i never ever saw him sitting back the australian fences were small you could almost brush through them Aintree mm. was a different thing i think quite honestly tommy would have been pulled out of the plate and i like the man tremendously but that's my own feeling well you know what the aussies are like with, with us palms yes. uh, sorry can i just uh, that's just reminding me john frankham who is his loyalist friend i was best man at his wedding he was best man at mine he he defends me over the national and he said 
Richard Pitman gave that horse a fantastic ride though, jumps the horse produced, the way they saved ground around the inner and all this, he gave it a great ride until after the last. <laughs> and he's right, and he's right. And he, he'd have won on him, but you can't go back, Stephen. You make these decisions, you live or die by them. Well, you're, you're famous for it anyway, so it's, uh, but it must be something you, you obviously, you're, you're living with all the time from what you're saying there as well. People still mention it, and on, on Twitter, they keep putting photographs up, you know, and wanting to talk about it. Quite amazing. What, 1973 that was. Well, you retired in 1975, 470 winners, and then you went into broadcasting. And we're going to talk about that in another show. Thank you very much. Um, but um, can I, sorry, can I interrupt you there? Yeah, a good sure. Story there. When I retired, I retired specifically because the job was available. Yeah. Um, at, with the BBC. And Franklin was 10 years younger, much, much better than me. It was the obvious thing to do. But the sporting life was the racing paper at the time, Broadsheet. Yeah. The headline, that thick, said failure. The next line, a little, not quite so thick, failure. And the third line under it, failure. Now, that takes a bit of swallowing, you know, when you've, you've, you've had some winners and you see that plastered all over the paper. But as you know, um, the writers, the journalists, don't do the headlines. So obviously whoever was the sub-editor in the sporting life at the time didn't mm. like me. But he was correct. I had failed to be champion jockey. I was second twice. Both times were on Barry. I had failed to win the Gold Cup. I was second twice in that. And I'd failed to win the National. So failure, failure, failure. He was correct. I think they're being a bit harsh there. But thank you very much for being on the paddock and the pavilion. A very Merry Christmas to, to you and your family. Um, and enjoy the King George, no doubt, from the sofa. Um, yes. Boxing Day. I will enjoy it. I love the race. And uh, it, it's going to be a smallish field this year. And I think the dark horse is Min, M-I-N, of Willie Mullins. He's got three. Not a confirmed runner yet, but... If that runs, that's what I should be cheering for. Right, well, thank you again for being on the show. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Pad and Pad. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.